Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs. And we'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Warren and I bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, all designed to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, more stories about the consequences of the COVID-19 virus outbreak, including how churches and Christian ministries are responding. Also in today's program, a Christian group that ministers to the children of military personnel. We've got all of that and a lot more on today's edition of the Ministry Watch podcast. We begin today with news that Congress has passed a $2 trillion stimulus package that will include money for churches. Churches will be able to apply for aid as part of the small business provision in the government's $2 trillion coronavirus-related stimulus package. And not everyone thinks that this is a good idea. Yeah, that's right, Natasha. American atheists, for example, pushed back on the measure after Marco Rubio, the senator, chairman of the Senate Small Business Committee, assured pastors that small business provisions would be open to churches. He did that in a conference call to pastors in his home state of Florida. But Nick Fish, who's the president of American Atheists, said, this is as un-American as it gets. This is precisely the type of government funding of religion the framers of our Constitution warned against. It was on an urgent pastor's briefing hosted by the Florida Family Policy Council that Rubio talked about this particular provision. He said, the package I've been tasked with establishing for the Senate and that we've been working on is open to nonprofits, basically churches and other nonprofit groups. But Rubio is calling this a desperate time. He says, this is an extraordinary measure, and it's something that I would vote no for in virtually every other circumstance. We don't know how long this is going to last, but at a minimum, we don't want to see people laid off. Now, Warren, our next story is a report of a death of a pastor at a Christian conference, but the story is actually about a lot more than that. And it causes us to ask some questions about what sort of responsibility conference organizations have to inform conference goers. Yeah, that's right. And to understand that, it's helpful uh, to quickly highlight the timeline of the situation. Uh, it begins more or less on March 4 through 6, when John MacArthur, who of course is a well-known uh, pastor and teacher, and his Grace Community Church in California held its annual pastor's conference, which is called the Shepherd's Conference, which, but it's what most attendees just abbreviate as SHEPCON. Now, those dates were before a lot of the emergency measures that we are now living with went into effect, but apparently people at that conference actually had this virus. Yeah, they did. In fact, on Thursday, March 19, about two weeks after the conference ended, one of the attendees died from the coronavirus. Uh, the man was a 90-year-old retired pastor named Alexei Kolometsev. So did the conference organizers inform those who attended the conference about this death? No, not right away. And that's where this story gets a bit complicated and interesting and perhaps even a bit troubling. How so? 
Well, when Alexei Kolomitsev died, his family posted on Facebook on March 20th, the next day, that the cause of death was at least highly suspected to be COVID-19, but the test results weren't back yet. So that fact highlights just how long it has taken to get test results. And it also creates a dilemma. Do you inform the people that Kolometsev has been in contact with or do you not? Well, the family and journalist Julie Royce thought that you should. So Royce wrote a story uh, for her ministry watchdog site, The Royce Report, informing her audience of the situation based on the Facebook posts of the family. She was careful to use the same language the family used, that this was a, quote, highly suspected case. Uh, she also, though, did criticize the organizers of ShepCon for not informing the 5,000 uh, people that were in attendance of the situation. Well, that sounds fair, but I take it that the organizers of this conference didn't think so? No, they did not at all. In fact, one of the organizers of the conference, Phil Johnston, criticized Julie Roy's story on Twitter, a couple of Twitter posts that went viral, and that criticism, as I said, got picked up by others. It was a classic shoot-the-messenger scenario. So what happened next? Well, on Monday, uh, March 23rd, now keep in mind, he died on the 19th and Julie Royce published on the 20th. So on Monday, March 23rd, it was confirmed that the man did indeed die from COVID-19. Shepcom then sent out a message to its attendees informing them. The email that they sent out said, at this time, uh, there have been no other conference guests who have reported a positive diagnosis of the coronavirus. We are now outside the incubation period for the virus set by the CDC, but we encourage you to continue to take necessary steps to ensure your personal health in this season. Okay, so this situation does raise troubling questions. I mean, questions about liability and the responsibility that we all have to notify others in our circles uh, of contacts if we have been exposed. And Ministry Watch post another story that raised interesting questions of responsibility. And the story asks what Christian colleges should do about refunding room and board fees they charge to students when the students will no longer be living on campus. Yeah, that's right. Most Christian colleges across the country have put classes on hold or announced temporary online learning arrangements. Some of these colleges have offered student fee rebates. Uh, They've canceled in-person classes altogether. And that's led some schools to say that they plan to issue a refund, not for tuition, but for room and board. Wheaton College, for example, in Wheaton, Illinois, one of the most respected Christian colleges in the country, said that it would issue students a full housing, and dining credit for the college's remaining quarter. Uh, The president of the college is Phil Riken, and he said, and I'm quoting here, we felt that in all fairness, if students were not living with us and dining with us, it would not be right to retain those revenues. He also admitted this whole situation is going to be very costly. This is going to be extremely challenging. Now, Grand Canyon University, which is one of the largest, in fact, sometimes it claims to be the largest Christian college in the country, is offering remote classes and plans to send students who have already moved off campus a refund check of about $450. 
They also said, Grand Canyon University also said that money that was left over in their meal plans will either be refunded or roll over to a future period if the students do plan to come back in the fall. Uh, Students who receive Grand Canyon University funded scholarship money for being on-campus residents will be able to keep their entire scholarship amount even if they left campus. But one college that generated controversy for not offering a refund and is, in fact, keeping its dorms open, and that's Liberty University. Yeah, that's right. I, in contrast to the what I would say is the fairness and generosity of the schools that we've just mentioned, Liberty has taken a little bit of a different tact, and it's caused some controversy. But I think it's important to get the facts straight, which is uh, something that a lot of media reports have not done. Liberty University, of course, is in Lynchburg, Virginia, and it's that other school, along with Grand Canyon University, that sometimes claims to be the largest Christian college in the country. And it has has, in fact, transitioned all of its classes to being online. So the reports that the college is open for business as usual are simply false. It's also false that the college has encouraged its students to return to campus and live in the dorms. Liberty has kept some dorms open so students that don't have any place to go can stay if necessary, but the dining facilities are closed and there is no requirement for the students to return. Okay, well, that doesn't sound too different from other colleges that you've mentioned. Well, it's not that different, actually. So why have the new reports gotten this so wrong? I mean, there have been stories in uh, Salon and Slate and the Washington Post and elsewhere saying that Liberty was open for business as usual. Yeah, well, I think there are a number of reasons for that. First, Jerry Falwell Jr. is a big supporter of Donald Trump, and the unfortunate reality of our current political environment is that the mainstream media like to paint both of these men in a negative light whenever they can. Secondly, Falwell, I think we should admit this too, relishes the attention. And he said and done some things that uh, I would say were designed to incite the media, and they've been pretty easy to caricature as well. Such as? Well, for example, uh, on March 16, the school's coronavirus update webpage said that it would be keeping its campus residence halls open, dining services staffed, and, quote, many of our international students are simply unable to return to their home countries and other students don't have a place to go. So uh, it was also said that the buildings would remain unlocked so that people could come and go as they pleased. And it is true, I should admit, that some students have returned to campus, but the vast majority have not. The vast majority are at home. And I happen to know this, Natasha, because my own daughter is a sophomore uh, at Liberty University, and she and the vast majority of her friends are not at Liberty, but they're taking online classes from home. In fact, she's upstairs right now. Okay, so, but back to the original question that uh, we started this conversation with, does Liberty plan to give refunds? Well, I do think that that is the key question here. So far, Liberty, unlike Wheaton, unlike uh, Grand Canyon University, has not offered any refunds. And this is in stark contrast, as I said, to lots and lots of other schools who consider it the fair and right thing to do. So I think if Falwell and Liberty deserve any criticism, it's probably in this arena. Uh, I will have to admit, though, as I've already said, that I have a daughter there and I have a bit of a conflict of interest in this matter because I wouldn't mind getting some my money back. Uh, But um, giving some sort of credit or refund to many Liberty parents um, 
doesn't right now seem to be in the offing, even though I think a lot of folks think it's the right thing to do. Now, Warren, we have to take a little break, but when we return, more coronavirus news, plus a story of a Christian ministry based right here where I am in Colorado Springs that cares for children of military personnel. I'm Natasha Smith. And I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And we'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch Weekly Podcast. Up next is a creative way some churches are dealing with the COVID-19 outbreak. And Warren, I think it would be appropriate to use a movie title to describe what's going on. And that movie title would be Back to the Future. Yeah, it would be appropriate, actually, in more ways than one, Natasha, because these churches are, in fact, using drive-in movie theaters um, to hold their worship service, and also because it's not a new idea. In some ways, it really is going back uh, to deal with this kind of new reality, this new future that we're dealing with. But I should mention that televangelist Robert Shuler uh, built a ministry empire beginning in California with this practice as its cornerstone. He was holding services in movie theaters back in the 1950s and 1960s. So it's an old idea that's become new again as pastors around the country know that they can't get together face-to-face in the ways that they have been, but are finding live streaming of worship services to be just a bit less than fully satisfying. A story that you posted this week features David Fork Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky. Yeah, the pastor there is Mickey Hyder, and he said uh, something that I thought was kind of clever. We still want to spread the word without spreading the virus. And you found a church in Texas that's doing the same thing. Yeah, Pastor uh, Chris Gober in Texas also decided to try the drive-in movie theater approach. He thought that that was the safest way for the folks of his church, which is First Montgomery Baptist Church in Texas. He said, "Uh, I was just asking God how in the world can we keep our church unified and maintain a family feel in the middle of all of this? And this is what he said came to mind. Uh, Following Sunday's outdoor service, he said that several church members were crying because of the joy that they felt at bringing the church together after especially having been isolated for a while. Uh, In fact, uh, Pastor Gober said this, stress and anxiety are so high right now, I think it's crucial for the church to bring the message of peace to the world. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be afraid or be worried. We just need to be prepared by accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior, he said, and trusting him during the sunshine and the storms. Amen. That is a beautiful testimony. But the outdoor service is still not 
perfect, is it? Yeah, no, it's not. Uh, Pastor Gober said that his congregation was what he called a hugging family, and they had to curtail that, which he said is actually sometimes harder whenever you can see people face-to-face because, you know, if you're doing it virtually or live streaming, you're not tempted to hug them, but when they're right in front of you, you are. And I don't expect that there will be much hugging in the Southern Baptist Convention's annual conference this summer either. No, you're right. In fact, it won't be much hugging because there won't be a conference. They've canceled the event altogether, which is, of course, different than what we talked about, what I reported for you last week. Um, This is the first time in 75 years uh, that the SBC's annual meeting will not be held, uh, the convention's New Service Baptist Press reported. Uh, This year's meeting was scheduled to take place June 9 and 10 in Orlando. Uh, The decision to cancel the gathering was made Uh, in a unanimous vote that included SBC officers, the Southern Baptist Convention's executive committee, and leaders of the SBC's boards and institutions. And I should, as I sort of alluded to, the last time uh, an SBC annual meeting was canceled was in 1945, uh, during World War II, when the U.S. government banned meetings of 50 or more people. And Natasha, for those of our listeners who might happen to be Southern Baptists, one of the practical impacts of this decision is that SBC President J.D. Greer, who's also a pastor in Durham, North Carolina, will remain in that role for another year. And last year's meeting, I should add, attracted more than 8,000 messengers. That's what they call the delegates to the convention, but a total of more than 12,000 people. Uh, SBC leaders were reportedly expecting an even larger crowd uh, this year. Uh, which was the last time that the conference had been held in Orlando, which, of course, is a popular destination point. Warren, we're going to take another break, but when we return, the latest in Ministry Watch series on alleged cult leader David Zhang and his network of companies, companies that include the online publication Christian Post. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. As I promised before the break, we have a new information about the Christian Post. Yeah, that's right. Regular listeners to the podcast or regular readers of the Ministry Watch website will remember our coverage of controversial South Korean religious leader David Jang and a business empire that includes both Olivet University and the Christian Post newspaper. A couple of weeks ago, former Christian Post CEO William Anderson pled guilty to fraud and money laundering schemes that involved more than $35 million. This week, we looked a bit more closely into the Christian Post business practices. 
And I understand that this includes how the Christian Post covered itself. Yeah, that's right. Now, during the time, for example, that Les Moonves was investigated and finally stepped down as the CEO of CBS News over claims of sexually harassing female employees, his own network repeatedly covered uh, his departure, in fact, even put it on the primetime evening news broadcast. And, you know, that's kind of standard for journalistic outlets. Uh, When executives or on-air personalities at other media companies got into trouble, the media companies that they worked for reported on their own executives, Roger Ailes, Bill O'Reilly, Charlie Rose, Garrison Keillor, Matt Lauer, Tavis Smiley, Tom Brokaw. I mean, the list just goes, unfortunately, on and on. But the Christian Post didn't do that with their own executives and former executives. The Post claims to be the nation's most comprehensive Christian news website, but it failed to publish a single word on its own growing five-year scandal that involved William Anderson, David Jang, and others. So is it possible that it simply has a policy um, that it doesn't cover any stories in which it's involved, or maybe that it determined that this wasn't actually news? Well, that's possible, I guess, in theory, but dozens of Christian and mainstream news outlets have already reported on the scandal, including the New York Times. Uh, so it's kind of hard to make the case that this wasn't news. You might disagree with the, you know, with the uh, New York Times's liberal status, but you'd have to admit that it wouldn't be wasting ink on this story if it didn't think it was significant. Uh, the Christian Post, though, even in spite of that, remains silent. And if its policy is to recuse itself from stories about itself, it's violated that policy in the past a number of times, but in order to defend itself. Uh, It has responded, for example, forcefully when David Jang came under fire uh, back around 2012 when Christianity Today published a series of stories uh, about them. Uh, At that time, the Christian Post didn't have any trouble Uh, letting uh, its readers know that the Christianity Today articles were, um, that they strongly disagreed with them, and they didn't let their readers know that the Christian Post was actually owned by David Jang. Now, I take it that disclosing this information is one of the basics of journalism. Yeah, it actually is whenever you have those kinds of self-disclosures. In fact, you remember just a couple of minutes ago, I mentioned that my own daughter went to Liberty University whenever uh, we were talking about Liberty. That's kind of a basic to let your readers or listeners know if you've got some personal skin in the game. And it's particularly ironic because William Anderson, a man I just mentioned earlier, former CEO of the Christian Post, the man who was convicted of fraud, uh, said that he wanted to create a Christian publication that rivaled the New York Times. The Ministry Watch story by Steve Raby also mentioned some strange beliefs held by Zhang and his followers. Yeah, it did. In fact, Steve uh, Raby did a great job with this story, much more uh, than we're going to have time to go into here today. But I just will mention this little anecdote that I think sort of brings this into focus. When the Southern Baptist Convention was trying to sell its conference center in Glorietta, New Mexico, a few years ago, Jang and Olivet University was one of the potential buyers. It offered $20 million for that conference facility. But because the Southern Baptists were scrupulous, they wanted this facility to go to an organization that was going to further the gospel, 
they investigated Jenks theology and ultimately determined that it was not biblical. In fact, they refused to sell the property to Jang, and they could have gained $20 million, and they ended up selling the property to another organization for $1 uh, because they knew that that other organization would use it for gospel purposes. Steve Raby's article also looks at some of these theological issues in greater detail as well. There is a lot more to this story that we can't get into here, but if you want to know more, read all the stories in this series. You can find them on Ministry Watch's website at ministrywatch.com. Warren, before the break, I promised that you'd tell us about a ministry that looks after dependents of military personnel, both here in the U.S. and around the world. Uh, you know, men and women in uniform make all kinds of sacrifices for our country, Natasha, but maybe the biggest sacrifice is just to be away from their own families. According to a 2019 survey, a military family lifestyle survey, it's called, of some 11,000 military personnel, uh, family issues outweighed all other concerns, including pay and health care. Yeah, I saw some of this information from the survey, and it was really stark. 45% of survey respondents said that their biggest concern was the amount of time that they spent away from their family. And 44% said that their top concern was dependent children's education, while 42% cited military family stability. Yeah, those are really significant numbers, uh, and they are numbers that an organization called Club Beyond pays very close attention to. Club Beyond is a Christian ministry to military teens organized by uh, the Military Community Youth Ministries, and that group is celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. And Warren, in the last story, we beat up a little bit on the Christian Post for not fully disclosing its potential conflicts of interest, but I understand that you have uh, one here. Yeah, I do. (laughs) It seems like today's podcast has uh, a number of those that I'm involved with. And in this case, in the spirit of full disclosure, I should say that in 1980, during one of the very first years of Military Community Youth Ministries' existence, my wife, Missy, was on staff with them. Back then, it was a part of Young Life, and she served at the huge U.S. military facility in Stuttgart, Germany. So I don't want to admit that I'm completely objective about this story. I've been a fan of Club Beyond, not just for years, but for decades. From the size of the ministry, it appears you're not alone. Yeah, that's right. Every week, about 2,300 middle school and high school students attend Club Beyond meetings literally all over the world at 27 Army and Air Force sites around the globe. There are Club Beyond meetings in Fort Benning, Georgia, Fort Hood, Texas, Fort Jackson in South Carolina, but also at Ramstein Air Base in Germany and Camp Humphreys uh, in South Korea. A Club Beyond has been meeting at West Point, where the United States Military Academy is since 1997. And military kids move every 18 to 30 months. So a child who was involved in Club Beyond at one base probably feels more at home if they can find a Club Beyond uh, at this new base. Yeah, that's right. Club Beyond is one of the few experiences uh, that can follow a military kid all around the world. That is a great story. And before we go, you've got one more coronavirus story, but this one is more of a good news story. Yeah, it is. One more coronavirus story, and I've got to say one more uh, disclosure that I've got to make it as well. But we'll get to the disclosure in a minute. First, you know, there's a lot scary about the COVID-19 outbreak. It's really 
uh, wonderful uh, it, and it, because it is so scary to be able to highlight stories of Christians responding courageously and gracefully uh, to that crisis. And last week, I ran into one of those stories, the Pentecostal uh, megachurch Angelus Temple in Los Angeles, uh, like a lot of churches, had to cancel its uh, church services, uh, but they used that time, they used their facilities, and they used a lot of their volunteer members to feed families in the neighborhood instead. Uh, its neighborhood, I should add, is Los Angeles's Echo Park neighborhood, uh, which was hit really hard by job losses, uh, not only before the coronavirus uh, pandemic, but also now during the coronavirus pandemic, because there are so many hourly workers there. Um, the Dream Center, which is a the church's nonprofit, has been open from early in the morning, 7.30 in the morning until 6.30 in the evening, to provide free hot and boxed meals all week long, not just to families with children from the Los Angeles Unified School District, but really anybody who wants to stop by for a drive-through or pickup service. And whenever I say they're providing meals, Natasha, I mean they're providing a lot of meals, 5,000 meals a day, as well as 150 uh, daily visits to the elderly to provide them with food. And a little extra credit here, uh, Chick-fil-A and Pink's hot dogs. And if you've from L.A., you know that Pink's is sort of an institution, have also donated food, according to Pastor Matthew Barnett. Wow, that is such an amazing story of Christians acting like Christians, which is encouraging. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Christians acting like Christians, what a novel idea. And again, here comes the disclosure. I need to add a personal footnote. A couple of years ago, I was at the Dream Center in Los Angeles and got probably about a two-hour tour of the facility with Pastor Matthew Barnett. It was really a great experience. And uh, before we took the tour, uh, we went on the roof of the building. I don't remember now exactly how tall the, the main building is. My recollection is it was five or six stories high. And whenever you're up that high, uh, you can look off of the distance and see the gleaming skyscrapers of downtown Los Angeles, uh, where there, of course, is tremendous wealth and power. But then we walked to the edge of the roof of that building and looked down on the neighborhood, and we could see real poverty. Uh, but what was exciting was that right around the Dream Center in the midst of this neighborhood, that was, you know, really struggling. There were playgrounds where the kids were playing. I could hear music. It was sort of like an oasis in the midst of a broken land and a really powerful example of neighbors loving neighbors. So it really doesn't surprise me that Matthew Barnett and the Dream Center have stepped up during this time of crisis to meet the needs of their community. In the midst of so many scary stories that we're hearing these days, what a great story to end the show with. Thank you for sharing them. If you'd like to read more about this story or any of the stories that we've discussed on today's program, just go to ministrywatch.com and you'll find most of them right there on the front page. And if they're not there, use the search engine to find what you're looking for. Yeah. Also, uh, if you're interested in finding out more about the 500 largest Christian ministries in the country, you can also go to the ministrywatch.com page and look for the bright red search for a ministry button, which is at the top of the page. We have financial information and our own financial efficiency rating for the 500 largest Christian ministries uh, in the United States. Ministry Watch is now tracking changes to the membership status of organizations in the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability as well. We bring that information to you each and every week in my weekly review column, which we post every Friday. 
Our producers are Rich Rosel and Steve Gandy. Our technical support comes from Casey Sedith. Writers who contributed to today's program include Sean Hendricks, Christina Darnell, Warren Smith, Ann Steig, and Steve Raby. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs. And I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Until next week, may God bless you.